Salutations, nerds. Before we get into this week's Nerds on History, we wanted to make a correction and a clarification for our last episode. First, our correction. It turns out that the Catholic and Orthodox churches agreed to celebrate Easter on the same date in the early 2000s. And now for our clarification. Regarding Pasqua, it turns out that Brian and Sarah were both correct. Pasqua is derived from the Greek word meaning lamb, which is also derived from the Hebrew word Pesach, meaning both lamb and Passover. This is a representation of the lamb's blood shed during the first Passover and is also what gave the holiday its name. Thank you for listening, and now, on with the podcast. And doing a quick sound check, mic one, sound check, mic one. Checking mic two, mic two, checking mic two. No, you you check mic three. I, I check mic two. Mm, no. No, 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 no. I've been gone for one month. And I come back, and all of a sudden, I've been demoted down to Mike 3. You know, Brian and I started this, uh, Eric, Sarah. That's actually Mike 4 that you're using. Over there is Mike 3. <laughs> I'm just going to go. I'm, gonna just gonna, I'm just going to go and have another kid, all right? Goodbye. Martha! Well, that was fast. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickman. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I'm Sarah Ashley. I'm back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back, Eric. It is good to have you back, sir. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting into the zone again. I'm getting comfortable in my not entirely comfortable, which is why I got demoted from my office out to the Nerd Cave chair, but way better than the full. You got to rework chair. in your butt groove. Yeah, I know. Has, has Roxy been sitting here? <laughs> no. Are you sure? Been... Oh, yeah. Wait. Oh, you switched chairs, huh? Yeah. yeah. she has been sitting in there. I, I could tell. I could tell. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. No, I'm better now. All right. Okay. Yes. I'm back. I went and had a baby, uh, everybody. I think uh, Brian and, and Sarah already told you that. But yeah, and I told you that before I was leaving. But I went and had another baby, and she's beautiful. Her name is Victoria, and she's big. She's a big, chunky little thing. And that's I love that you guys like have like them. a little name theme going on everything ends in an ia you gotta have you gotta have consistency i love you it. know yeah it's my little anthology is mm-hmm. what i'm calling it now it's done <laughs> it's done no more kids i don't have any more kids so uh yeah and how is it juggling two babies at the same time i thought it would be a lot harder but if you just kind of keep one lower as you're throwing the other one in the air it's not that bad <laughs> <laughs> Aside from the fact that one's a lot larger than the other right now. Well, you keep the larger one down low. Okay. And it's just, you get the more upward lift. Yeah. Right. That you need. (laughs) The other one's just easy. No, it's, 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 it's good. Actually, Victoria is an extremely easy baby. Mm -hmm. Uh, The only time she cries really is if she's hungry or she's wet and she's not colicky or fussy. She just kind of likes to lay there and listen to the sounds in the room and kind of look around she's very curious mm-hmm. um so when she's awake she's just kind of happy to chill out in the bassinet if we're you know running around chasing the other one because Emilia is a real handful because she's a year old now and she's starting to get more mobile and getting around and causing trouble and getting into stuff but she is so funny that kid is hilarious and um she she's well it's a little indifferent about her sister when she first met her i was gonna say how's she yeah. taking the new sister now well at first she was kind of like i don't know what this is it kind of looks like me. It kind of smells like me. <laughs> it kind of sounds like me, but it's totally not me. It's small and it's very squeaky. And this, I'm just inferring this from her, her right. you know, facial features and, and 
you know, goo and other things that she says. But, uh, and now she starts to point at the baby and she's trying to touch the baby and she laughs when she touches the baby. She thinks it's kind of funny. And, uh, so yeah, she's, she's, she's warming up to her. Nice. Yeah. Well, congratulations, sir. Well, thank you very much. Has Emmy started walking yet? Is she? She's so freaking close. She's holding on to the furniture and, and trying, you know, like rocking back a little bit and kind of trying to get her legs under her, but she's, uh, she's getting close. It's going to happen soon. It's going to have to happen by the time I go back to work because Martha's going to have a really hard time with both of them kids without me being home. But uh, yeah. Anywho, how are you guys doing? I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to have you back. You know, same old, same old. Yeah. It's good to be back. I didn't kill him while you were gone. So that's a good sign. I was a little surprised. I mean, every (laughs) time you guys emerged alive, I was, I was pleased. Don't get me wrong, but, uh, yeah surprised mm-hmm. 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 i did find a, find a bomb under my car though one night not armed or anything just just under my car oh it's kind of weird I... just sitting there on the ground or actually up underneath? no attached yeah oh, that's okay. crazy i think somebody may have been trying to give you a warning i have no idea dave <laughs> 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 well anyway so what's our topic tonight guys uh, something on stem cells, I think. Something like that. No, what? No. <laughs> St- yeah. Stim. Stimulants. It's on stimulants, I believe. Uh, Some sort of coffee. Stimulants. We're doing now. That explains why we were talking about Breaking Bad before we started recording. Yeah. <laughs> this all makes sense now. Yes. Um, actually, no. Our topic tonight is women in STEM. Oh, STEM. Sorry. Yes. Science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Oh, thank God. For for a second, I thought we were talking about some like absurdist theater sp- theater piece where it was just like this giant stem of, with women inside of it like monologuing and you know just right. kind of like this language it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to, you know but it's somehow a metaphor for life you know something about mother gaia i don't know <laughs> yeah um <laughs> i'm very relieved yeah being the theater person i'm actually a hundred times more relieved that we're talking about this topic instead yes now, can you so- imagine a production like that it would sell 10 maybe 15 tickets it would be wild. It would be it would be big in Edinburgh. It'd be huge in Edinburgh. Oh, absolutely. yeah, <laughs> absolutely. They'd sell twenty minimum. Well, anyway, um, <laughs> no. So this is actually a pretty a pretty heated topic um, out on the internet and in the forums. If you've ever seen commercials for uh, toys like Goldie Blocks, where um, we're really trying to promote young girls to to find their interests in math and sciences and technology. Um, because this is a really underrepresented um, area for women. And I thought it'd be really interesting to get a historical perspective to to kind of show that there ha- have been some really amazing work. There's been amazing work done by women in these fields that have kind of gone overlooked in history, um, kind of ignored because of the people who were writing history, sure. who were taking all this stuff down. And by some of their sometimes by some of their colleagues. Um, kind of stepping on on toes and um, and taking credit for women's work. Sure. So, um, well, I, I mean, if we're talking about the medieval ages in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Science in general was overlooked. Yeah. It disappeared um, from popularity for a very long time, and it really wasn't until the Renaissance period that you saw science come back into the forefront, and for individuals to be uh, not necessarily the term scientist to be used, but to be recognized for their scientific work. Yeah. And they were predominantly men. And they were big names that are out there, like Leonardo da Vinci, for example. Mm-hmm. Sure, uh, who in that term and period in time, the term artist engineer was actually oftentimes 
a one word for people because you had to be both. You right. weren't just looking at things from the visual. You were looking at things from a mechanical exactly. perspective as well. And that was dominated by men. Uh, and many of them were employed by the church, which, of course, was dominated by men. Men, yeah. yeah. So, the, I mean, it's not a huge surprise. And, you know, you got to understand that in pre-agricultural societies, women were very much on equal footing with men. But there wasn't a whole lot of deep, you know, meaningful philosophical uh, thought that was being recorded in history at that time. Right. So, you know, as time went on, we saw that, that men dominate that landscape. Mm -hmm. Women are obviously <clears throat> going to be excluded. It's a control thing. Sure. I think it's worth noting, though, that once we get to the Renaissance, once we get to the kind of rebirth of scientific knowledge... Uh, it's not long, very long after, maybe even a couple of decades, that we start to see women start to get involved with it. And unfortunately, that's what this episode's about. Like, their contributions are not recognized sure. by the status quo, right? right? They were hapshatsit-did, is what I would like to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's, um, that's a very obscure and lofty Egyptian thing to say. Can you, can you put that in layman's terms for us, please? So ancient times, right? Paint a picture. 18th dynasty, ancient Egypt, you had the pharaoh Hepshatsut, who assumed the role traditionally held by men and did not just an extraordinarily well job of it, but was recognized at the time for doing an extraordinarily good job at it all. And it wasn't until generation after her that they went ahead and systematically tried to wipe her out from history because it was a woman doing these things and women were not, you know, meant to assume the role of pharaoh and title. They could they could do some things and 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 rule the country but their son had to assume, you know, credit right. for it. They weren't allowed to take the credit. And she took the credit. So all of these other women, they're just being hapshatted. Hapshatted? Hapshatted. How about this? That's what How we're about going this? with. Hapshafted. Ooh, hapshafted. Bam. That's a good one. I think we have an episode title. Hapshafted. <laughs> Great. Yes. <laughs> well, okay then. So who are these people who've been hapshafted? Well... Let's just kind of take a step back and let's let's look at some larger names that we may not that we may already know, but um, don't necessarily associate with, uh, you know, science and tech and that kind of thing. Um, Hypatia of Alexandria was a woman who actually did really active work in mathematics and was an, a full blown academic um, and was doing commentaries on the work of Ptolemy and a few other like early mathematicians. Then there was, I know Eric has some feelings about this, but Cleopatra, there's some medieval um, Arabic text that does suggest that she was fairly active um, in the realms of math and chemistry and early philosophy. And there are also texts of the same time period mm -hmm. uh, that suggest that she enjoyed bathing in goat's milk. Now, sure. whether or not we can substantiate both of these claims, any of these claims, we it's it's hard to say. Mm -hmm. But I know what you're referring to, and you're referring to, you know, a book that was published a few years back that was talking about, you know, Egyptology through the eyes of, of medieval uh, writings, essentially right. medieval Egyptian writings. and. You know, of the time, I, I would actually look more to her contemporaries than I would for those people after her, because right. a lot of what we think we know about Cleopatra is oftentimes created out of rumor and lore, and most of it's negative. Most of it talks about her sexuality and mm -hmm. talks about her in a, in a very negative light. The reality of Cleopatra was she was an incredibly intelligent woman. Yes. She was born in a family that was 
kind of steeped in the best of both worlds, right? So she has this great historical background in the Hellenistic world and with this, you know, in the classical period as she's kind of living in it. Sure. And then she's also got her ancient Egyptian adopted heritage that comes along with it all. Right. So I, I, I'm not terribly surprised that, you know, something like this would be said. I just don't know if we can say definitively, yes, she met every single week with scientific advisors. Can I make a counterpoint to this? Sure. Agreed. We, you're right. There's absolutely no way we'll be able to substantiate it without looking at contemporaries. However, knowing the area, knowing that this is Central Asia, a.k.a. the Middle East, and knowing that during this period in history, the way that a lot of history was passed forward was through oral tradition, and then eventually it gets written down centuries later when someone has the, the tools and knowledge to apply that. It can stand the reason that there is some nugget of truth there. Sure. But, of course, as always with oral tradition, mm-hmm. and I say this, of course, as a Christian who acknowledges that a lot of the New Testament was handed down from oral tradition up right. until it was actually put in, in place. Uh, you obviously do get some of the details that get muddled and along the l- way. And let the nuggets lay where the nuggets be. That's fine. I have no problem with the nuggets. I'm just saying that we we can't we, we shouldn't be saying it definitively. Sure. But it's certainly but there possible. is but there is evidence also that in ancient Egypt, women were also serving as doctors and were fairly educated. Women were far more on par with men yeah. in ancient Egypt than they were in just about any other ancient civilization yeah. or even some modern uh, parts of the world today. So, so yeah. it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. I know. I just, I, you know, me with Egypt, I, know, I don't I like know, definitives if we don't know that it's definitive. I understand. I'm just saying. Now you're just getting me to. That's why I said it suggests God, Eric. You're just thinking that you didn't hear it in your museum training, Eric. You know what it is? I've been gone for a month, so I'm hypersensitive. Clearly. I'm I'm, I'm very... I'm I'm just... I'm surprised that Alan decided to make a quick little appearance. Yeah, that's weird. Alan usually stays on Nerds on Film. Well, you know, I am back, so Alan. Yeah. Thank you. He had had to be here for your homecoming. Of course. (laughs) Of course. Um, And then just a few others. Um, St. Hildegard. Um, was a writer and a composer and a philosopher and a Benedictine abbess. Um, Mm. But she also spent a lot of time, in addition to writing about theology, she spent a lot of time writing about um, uh, uh, botany and medicine and kind of developing some early sciences there. Um, And then just lastly, um, there's an astronomer named uh, Wang Zenyi who um, lived in the 1700s who was a amazing astronomer who wrote books about the lunar eclipse and um, kind of uh, wrote this really interesting book on about the shape of the earth and why if we try space exploration, we probably won't fall off of it <laughs> and kind of talking about the context of, of the world within the cosmos. What yeah. time period is that? This is in 1700s. Yeah. 1700s. So, so talk about the world being spherical alone mm-hmm. for that time period is, is impressive. Talk about exploration of our world beyond our world is groundbreaking. And this yeah. is imperial China we're talking about, yeah. essentially. Mm-hmm. That's that's huge. And what? she she was a huge advocate for, um, uh, and, and uh, spearheaded a lot of reform as far as having women be educated. Yeah. I wanted to make a quick comment about St. Hildegard real, mm-hmm. for a second. Um, just to bring up too, because naturally when you live a life that is monastic, you do tend to, to take on a very agricultural existence Mm -hmm. uh you do your praying but you're also you know they usually acknowledge that there's a balance between work and prayer so you do a lot of these things that involve planting and so forth this was actually not uncommon of other males too to write books about botany so just to put in context the 
significance of her contributing to an existing lexicon of monastic writings mm -hmm. about the subject. Yeah. So, cool. So that's just a little bit of extra historical background context. I know we're going to dive a little bit deeper into um, women that are a little bit closer to our time period. Um, and if you guys don't mind, I do want to kick it off with kind of like the the grandmother of computers. We are going to jump through time. Oh, good. Because I can't get through hoops. <laughs> I've tried. Well, we are in Lord a room knows that, I've tried. We are, we are recording in a studio that is TARDIS themed. Yes. So it yes. makes sense that we would jump through time yeah. to talk about the people we find interesting who have mm -hmm. advanced the field of science, technology, and yeah. medicine forward. Yes. Well, and we all know that Alan Turing came up with the first computer, really. It, that, that is debatable. It's debatable. He, he he was he I think and the Americans were both working at the same time on what we now consider modern computers. Yes, I think Alan Turing's is much closer to the electronic computer than ENIAC was. But that being said, and let it be acknowledged, we're talking about the electric computer because it was the ancient Greeks who devised the first. That's true. Computer. Yes. Yeah. Just that is it yes. Out. Okay. Just yes. First modern computer. Yes, modern computer. I like. Okay. That. Well, Ada Lovelace is somebody that actually, I find this very interesting because I've known computer science majors who've never heard of this person. Yeah. And I find that absolutely horrible because she was inspirational to Alan Turing. He wrote about her work specifically. Um, and so Ada Lovelace was born in 1815 and she was actually the daughter of Lord Byron the poet. Oh. Yes. I didn't know that. Um, she was the only his only child um and well of him between him and his wife he had several other children <laughs> yeah. out of wedlock this is lord byron yeah. we're talking about he had several other children out of wedlock and which really really made um ada's mother not pleased so she <laughs> she separated from him and the lady byron she was pissed yeah <laughs> and so um so i think right after ada was born Byron separated from his wife and he eventually died when she was eight years old. So Aiden really never had a chance to truly know her father, which is pretty sad. But we're, this is what Anne, um, Byron's wife, really wanted because she wanted Ada to stay as separate from her father as possible. She did not want Ada to be kind of considered the madman that he was. So she mm. made sure that Ada stayed heavily focused on mathematics in her studies as opposed to poetry. And so that was kind of by Anne's design. And Ada had, she was really brilliant. And there's um, a, kind of a lot of really rich stuff about her personal life. She kind of got herself caught up in scandal because she would, uh, even after she was married, she was, you know, hanging out with a lot of male contemporaries. And um, people saw that as extremely improper and thought that she was having affairs when she necessarily wasn't. But um, she was just interested and constantly had curiosity and was very um she considered her approach to science and math as poetical science hmm. so she always kind of still had this interest in poetry and this kind of obsession with her father's work um and so she kind of played it out in her head as you know how can these things be organized with math and how does it sound like poetry and she would equate 
you know, certain equations to fairies. And so, like, she was just a very, very fascinating person. And that's actually a very modern concept because you see a lot of scientists trying to do the same thing now. How do mm -hmm. they connect to a larger audience? And yeah. I think of, like, Neil deGrasse Tyson, for example, who has really taken the, the theatrical side of it, if you will, and tried to merge... Mm -hmm. astrophysics with with the theatrical not just his series with cosmos but he does also his radio show with star sure. talk and um and being the director of the hayden planetarium i mean that's what a planetarium show is right it's bringing science and another medium to present that science and marrying them together right so i i, I find that to be a very advanced for her time concept yeah and so the the part that makes this really interesting is as to where um Ada Lovelace comes into play as far as why is she so important, you know, and why is she so important to Alan Turing, is that she actually developed what could be considered the world's first computer program. And she did this through her friend, uh, Charles Babbage. She met him in 1833 through a mutual friend. And Babbage had already kind of created a pro prototype for what he called his difference engine, um, which was a really fancy schmancy calculator effectively, but it operated kind of with the same idea that a, a modern computer would operate with. Mm. Um, and he eventually kind of went, took that prototype and then developed plans for the analytical engine, which would use the concept of punch cards and that kind of thing that, again, would later be used for computers later on down yeah, the line. 100 years later, my grandfather was working on computers. That's exactly the system he used. Yes, exactly. And so... Babbage had this full memoir that he had kind of, or I'm sorry, he had all this work that he came up with for the analytical engine. And then a friend of his, an Italian, wrote a memoir about Babbage's work on the analytical engine. And Babbage asked Ada Lovelace to translate it. And so she was, she went to work for months translating this Italian text. And in the same time, she was annotating off to the side. She actually ended up annotating more about the analytical engine than the actual memoir's length. She hmm. was writing more notes about it, expanding upon this whole thing. So not so much that she was the creator of the computer program, but more that she was like a program, like a, like a she developer. Was, no, she was, she was writing about the computer and coming up with a program for the computer. So she's a programmer. She's a programmer. Ah. That's what I'm saying. She wrote the world's first computer program because... What Babbage was con was conceptually creating was a computer that could do some stuff, right. but he didn't really get the idea of like, you how, know, it how it? does it yeah. keep doing it? What does it do this yeah. stuff? Yeah. Mm. And she came up with this, this complete detail, um, detailed method for calculating the sequence of Bernoulli numbers, which is mm, extremely yeah. complicated. And so, and she came up with this whole concept of how it's done since then. A lot of people have tried to downplay her work, have said that, well, I think it was Babbage that actually came up with it, and she was just taking ideas from other people's, and she just wrote it out. But so is everybody. But, yeah, that's, but, that's, that's how you but make discoveries. But Babbage himself has said that Ada Lovelace was his muse, that she was the one who wrote all that, and he he completely defended her up until the day that she died, which she died... Uh, Very young. She was she, only 37 years old when she died. 36. Sorry, 36. 36, and she died of uh, uterine cancer, I believe. Yeah. Which was exacerbated by bloodletting. <laughs> yeah. Well, which, that was the prescribed... I know. Hey, what you, what's, what's ailing you today? Oh, uterine cancer. Oh, uh, yeah, so good bleeding will get that fixed. Right? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Fix that right up for you. Um, <laughs> <Hold> your dress. <laughs> what's really interesting about this, though, is that 
Um, the one place where Alan Turing differs, and I think where he very specifically wrote um, in regards to um, Ada Lovelace, is that she very famously dismisses the idea of artificial intelligence. She mm. basically says that computers are just the tool. We tell it what to do, and it does it for us in a much faster and speedier processed way. But we're the ones who are telling it what to do, whereas Alan Turing absolutely believed in artificial intelligence and saying that computers can go beyond and can, you know, think on their own. They don't necessarily need us to do it. They'll and they'll get there eventually. And I don't blame her. I mean, that itself is a pretty far out concept. But, yeah. But in her defense, you have to tell the computer to do that first right. before it is able to exactly yeah. you know, do it itself. So, mm -hmm. so in many ways, they're both right. Yeah. And in yeah. a way, um, that was kind of the, the heartbreaking piece of the imitation game, too, is that mm -hmm. You kind of find out, I mean, I don't know if this part was dramatic license or was actually Turing's, like, objective, but you, post the war, after they've cracked the Enigma, you find him working on this machine in his house, this computer in his house, and he calls it Christopher. Yeah. And Christopher was the name of his, of the only man he ever loved, well, he called, really. He called Christopher the machine that was, the Enigma machine. Did he call it that, too? He called it Christopher. So he was yeah. trying to rebuild it then, basically. He was trying yeah. to rebuild Christopher. Yeah. And his goal was, I think, was to cre recreate basically try to recreate artificial intelligence to try mm -hmm. to get him back because yeah. it's a very tragic story. I don't want to spoil the movie for anybody, but, um, well, he, and he very, I mean, he very specifically wrote a paper called computing machinery and intelligence as a rebuttal to Ada Lovelace. So, yeah, I mean, this was something that he was absolutely passionate, passionate about. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. So, um, and this was in the, what was the time period again? This is in the 1800s. Yeah. She died in 1852. Okay. Yeah. So we're talking early to mid yeah. Uh, 19th century. Yeah. Got it. So. Industrial revolution. I mean, so that's when a lot yeah. of these thoughts mind, were. Mind blown mm. for some of y'all who Absolutely. haven't heard of her. But I would argue mm. that while Ada Lovelace did certainly pave the way for computer programming, she was probably taking, she had a predecessor that allowed her to be able to do such things. Okay. One of the people I'm going to talk about is Margaret Cavendish. Okay. Uh, the Duchess of Newcastle upon Tyne, if you want to be specific. Um, one of the things she did, so, I mean, granted, what, let me just kind of set the, the frame here. So we're talking about, about the, the mid to late 17th century, right? So we're, we're getting to a point now where royal societies are starting to be formed. Science is starting to be acknowledged as a separate means of religion to being able to discover the truth of the, of the natural world, right? Separate from religion. Uh, and Again, no surprise, as cultures have evolved, we find that those in the higher classes who have the money and the resources to conduct the, that research are the ones who have access to that knowledge, right? Being that Cavendish was a duchess, being born to privilege, she was able to have access to these kinds of things. Uh, and she was also other things, too. She was, a, she was definitely a poet. She was also a dramatist. She wrote several plays mm -hmm. during the time period. Awesome stuff. But the big thing is she wrote a book on natural philosophy, now, you might argue that that's not science by modern terms, but if you think about class, the, the whole idea of the classics, right? Who are the big wigs? Who are the big heads of classical philosophy? Who are the two that, that come to mind? Uh, Sartre, Aristotle, Plato. <laughs> Plato and, to me, Plato and Aristotle. Yeah. Okay. okay. Plato was so focused on the metaphysical universe, but mm -hmm. Aristotle was largely focused on the physical universe, right? For many centuries... Aristotle's ideas of 
the physical universe was effectively what we acknowledged as science, right? Mm -hmm. Along with what was the natural history that we acknowledge as truth from the Bible, basically. So, I mean, yes, and obviously at this point in time, we've already had, you know, people like Galileo, and we're starting to see people like Newton and other major contributors starting to actually contribute to modern science. Yes. That being said, I think what makes Cavendish's contribution unique is that she was one of the first people to reject the Aristotelian model of the natural universe or the, or the natural philosophy in general. And um, she she kind of took more of an approach from from the Stoics, which is another classical school of thought. But I just think that that in and of itself is worth noting, even though I haven't had the chance to read her work mm-hmm. and get into the, her arguments. I think that's a big thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Cool. Eric, what do you have? Well, as you folks are aware, I have many passions in life. Egypt being one of them, history in general, but also astronomy. Trying like hell to make a TARDIS. Yes, Brian. You interrupted me, Brian. I'm sorry. <laughs> never again. <laughs> uh, I, I, I have never once seen the killer rage in Eric's eyes. Until, you have. Until this very moment. No, no, no. You have. But this was on the on the level of killer rage. This was like a this was like a nine. It's pretty high. Is that a nine like right before a Sarah? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever achieved a Sarah. Question: right Does the scale go to eleven? No, but I'm willing to amend it for you. Continue. <laughs> I apologize. As I was saying, astronomy. I love astronomy. Uh, you might just hear a little bit of this in the next episode. But uh, huh, it's like we were planning this. Yeah. I do love when astronomy and history come together. And in this particular subject, they happen to do so, so very well. Because of course. in the field of astronomy, women have oftentimes been overlooked and overshadowed. And many times their accomplishments have been taken uh, by their male contemporaries or pushed aside and suppressed in favor of their own theories to oftentimes get to the exact same conclusion maybe going about it slightly differently. But regardless, women have had a difficult time in this field for quite a while. And uh, Henrietta Swan Leavitt is no exception to that rule, despite the fact that she is a significant contributor to our understanding of our own place in the universe. Do tell, Eric. So uh, Miss Leavitt was incredibly intelligent. From a very early age, she had a, a deep passion and desire to learn. Uh, so it was no surprise that she would become as highly educated as the time would allow for, which Mm -hmm. was difficult for women to achieve degrees from many of the major universities. Absolutely, it was. Uh, But she did, however, uh, achieve a degree um, from Radcliffe University. What Uh, year was this? This was, let's see, she was born in 1868. Okay. Um, So I believe it was 1892 when she achieved her degree. Yeah. Uh, In addition to that, she also traveled throughout Europe and uh, attended university abroad, where she studied a variety of different topics, including the fine arts, philosophy, uh, calculus, ancient Greek history. So really varied, uh, a lot of very interesting topics. In fact, astronomy was one of the last things that kind of came to her attention. She didn't even take a class in it until her fourth year in college. Wow. Uh, In doing so, she got a very good grade, an A-, which was quite excellent for the time, and With that, uh, she ended up at the Harvard College Observatory, which is a a very well-known, very prestigious part of Harvard. Uh, That's huge, actually. Yeah. There she was actually hired uh, by Edward Charles uh, Perkins as a computer. Not to say that she would stand in a corner and punch cards would be inserted into her mouth and she would bite down on them. (laughs) Um, But It was a profession for a long time. She was a 
she was computing. <clears throat> she was she was going through and, yeah. and yeah. sifting through large uh, amounts of data uh, in their photographic plate collection, looking yeah. specifically at veritable stars, which are really neat. And if you have a small telescope, you can look at veritable stars yourself, and you can observe exactly why they are called that because they they change in their luminosity. Uh, they get go through periods of brightness and dimness and so on. And by sifting through thousands upon thousands of these plates and working with a, a team of, of women who, who are doing the same thing, she was able to make some pretty startling discoveries. Um, one of them being the fact that you can actually use this consistent rate that they are fluctuating at. It's, it's very interesting the way that despite the fact they were separate stars, they all kind of fluctuate very much the same way to determine how far away the star is from a relative point in space being Earth, for example, the observing place, and use that to pinpoint, you know, your your place in the galaxy and understand how far away things are from you. And that was earth-shattering. That was huge. I mean, later generations would go ahead and do some things in it that would completely change the way that we perceive ourselves in this universe. Most notable, of course, is Edwin Hubble, who acknowledged uh, Levitt's work uh, often and owed much of what he did to her. In fact, when he accepted the Nobel Prize, he mentions her and says that if she was still alive today, he wished the Nobel Prize had been given to her. Oh, wow. Uh, because without that work, he would have nothing to stand on. He would have had nothing to work with. And to put it into perspective, what he was able to do was look at veritable stars, not in our own galaxy, but in other galaxies, which at the time weren't even thought of as galaxies. They were still thought to be nebula, these large gaseous clouds. Only these were spiral nebula is what they were identified as. And observing the stars within these so-called spiral nebula, he noticed that they are way further away than they should be to be within our own local Milky Way. That distance had already been calculated approximately. You know, this is where the known universe ends, essentially. He redefines the known universe because of her work. Wow. And not only that, but then takes that and essentially creates Hubble's law, where he's able to look at the light and put it on the Doppler effect and look at it as it shifts and determine that these galaxies are not static. They're not staying in one place. They're actually moving away. Yeah. And we're all moving away from each other. And this is one of the fundamentals that you now learn in like the first couple of weeks of an astronomy course. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's huge. That's remarkable. And without her work, none of that could ever have been done. Yeah. Sisters it, are doing it for them. Just, just wanted to make a comment too. The, the fact that she was able to obtain a college degree in this period of time uh, says a lot because yeah. a lot of colleges at this point in time, even though they didn't officially say they wouldn't accept women. It was very often that when a woman applied to these schools, they would be rejected. Yeah. You she know, achieved a bachelor's degree. But, you know, other women went and took the courses, but simply would not be offered right. a degree. You know, they could go and do, do the class and do very well, but they wouldn't be recognized for their right. work. Uh, what I also find incredible is that while she was actually traveling and shortly after she got back from, the United, uh, from Europe, she became very ill and lost most of her hearing. And it got worse and worse and worse over time. So by the time that she was working on this, she was almost completely deaf. And she also employed the hire of women who were hearing impaired to do this very work because oh, wow. it required so much focus that the other distractions that you would have around you were not present with these individuals. This was on an episode of Cosmos. It was. It? Yeah. I, was I already talked episode. about Neil deGrasse Tyson once yeah. in this episode, but that's true. This yeah. was. And it just, it, it paints a whole other picture of her. And unfortunately, she died very young. Uh, she was only 53 at the time of her death. She died of cancer. Mm. 
and her full potential was never acknowledged during her life. Wow. Uh, but future generations have since acknowledged her place. That's, that is really, really fascinating. That is very... Actually, you know what? And the next person I want to talk about is actually a contemporary of her, but not in astronomy, but in the fields of um, biology. And, you know, we were just talking about how difficult it was for women to achieve higher degrees. Um, well, I'm going to talk about Nettie Stevens. Uh, she was born in 1861. And in two years, she completed the four-year course that is considered for normal school, like the kind of, you know, become a school teacher type school. Um, so she did that in two years and graduated top of her class, did a little brief stint as a, as a school teacher for a bit, and then decided to go to Stanford and got her bachelor's and her master's in arts in 1900. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Brilliant woman. Um, and she decided that she wanted to continue her studies. And so she was going to achieve a PhD. Um, she got accepted into, um, or she got accepted to do research at Bryn Mawr. And in her research, she was discovering that some species chromosomes are actually different between the two sexes. Hmm. She was the one who discovered XY, chrome, XY. Yeah. XY chromosomes. Um, and this was so important because if you read biology textbooks, most of the time the credit goes to Thomas Morgan. And Thomas Morgan, when he had actually written a letter of recommendation for her, he said, of the graduate students that I have had during the last 12 years, I've had no one that was as capable and independent in research as Miss Stevens. Yet, when he <laughs> decided to take credit for her work, he, uh, following her death, he wrote an extensive um, obituary for her in a science journal and saying that she was more of a technician than a scientist. Ooh. Yeah, he's kind of a jerk. Wow, wait till she's dead. Yeah. Well, so, You've heard of kicking them when they're down. And the douchebag <laughs> of the century award right. goes to, well, actually not him, probably Hitler. But, <laughs> well, but he's century, honorable mention. His century. Yeah. Oh, the 19th century? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. He's definitely a contender. That's true. I, sorry, I got my 19th and 1900s. Mixed up. Apologies. Yeah. Well, actually, this is in the early 1900s. Oh, happened, then it's so. definitely Hitler. Yeah. 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 So. Okay. Second. So he's so he's, <laughs> he's, he's a definitely he always has to take first in everything. Yeah. You know, he's definitely on the shit list. Yeah. <laughs> so, but she was um so she was working in Bryn Mawr's biology department originally under Edmund Beecher Wilson and then um, Thomas Morgan was his successor. So she kind of was um, working underneath both of them, and. She was doing this study on mealworms, and that's where she discovered um, the XY chromosomes and the differences. And she actually, um, Wilson actually gave her a lot of credit because she was also the first to recognize that females have two large sex chromosomes because Wilson was only performing tests on testes and not eggs because <laughs> eggs were too fatty for like the staining procedures at the time. <laughs> and he actually wow. had to rewrite an entire paper, and he thanked Nettie Stevens for bringing that to his attention. Did you say worms? I'm just curious. Mealworms. Male, male worms. Mealworms. Mealworms. Yes. Okay. I have a thought I want to add when you're done. I'm sorry. Okay. So, so he was even putting down the female worms. Well, no. So this was Wilson. <laughs> this was um, this was Morgan's oh, predecessor. Right. Um, so he was he was actually giving credit where credit was due. Absolutely. And also um, when. The, the work on fruit flies that Morgan gets credit for, um, for mapping the first gene locations onto chromosomes and fruit mm -hmm. flies, 
Stevens was the one who brought the fruit flies to his attention. And yet he completely just stamped her out of history on that one. Um, however, she was later recognized and she was one of the first American women to be recognized for her contributions to science. There you so. go. And as it turns out, she would have had a predecessor to have worked off of as well. We'll see. There we go. So I do also want to point out, though, that she died also at the age of 50 of breast cancer. What the hell is going on? I think it's conspiracy. A lot of women are dying from breast cancer. Well, yes. Or just cancers in general, right? Cancer's cancer hates women. Cancer hates people. Bad um, cancer. Bad. So Nettie Stevens was able to make these contributions by observing mealworms. Mm-hmm. Let's take it again back to the late 17th century. This is getting more toward the latter half, 1675-ish, Okay. Uh, when we meet uh, Anna Maria Sibylia Marion. Four names. Say that ten times fast. You're right. <laughs> I'm not going to. Um, She'll be known as Anna for the rest of the podcast. She, uh, she was a... We'll just go with Marion as her last name. Marion was a botanical artist. So her job was mostly of drawing plants and the insects that were around plants. And now at this point in time... Most people didn't venture into understanding insects because they were believed as the beasties of the devil. They were these small creatures that crawled on the ground and did nasty things. So, uh, but she was the first person to illustrate the metamorphosis cycles of insects. And she was the first person to care to notice that. Mm -hmm. So because of that, we had actually advanced our understanding of entomology and being able to understand how insects thrive and exist. Um, I just think that is uh, pretty big. And on top of that, she was also one of the first people to write a science book in vernacular and oh, not wow. use lofty terms of in mm. Latin to make it sound like it was hard to understand. She wrote awesome. it in plain language. And because of that, her. exactly. And because of that, she actually was more popular in high society because it wasn't, she wasn't using lofty science speak. She was using everyday so language. So people could actually understand and made science more for the people. I exactly. love it. Exactly. I love it. I love it. Good honor. <laughs> that was the mic. There we go. <laughs> cool. He can't actually drop it because it's attached to an arm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually. And I wouldn't be picked and up. And we have to stop recording and put it back and on. It would, and it would, be, be, and it would really just be a mess <laughs> and people wouldn't enjoy listening to that. You could bring that. the table to the mic easier, actually. No, no. So there you have it. That's all Great. I have to say. I just that's wanted all, to throw that's that. That's all he's got. Hey, there. that's okay. Yeah. Eric, that's okay. what you yes. got? Bring us home. Dark matter. Dark matter. Dark matter you've heard it yes? yes yes of course we've all heard dark matter it's kind of around these days right well it's been around for a long time but the idea of dark matter has been around for about 50 years or so and it we have to really thank vera rubin for it even though she wouldn't be acknowledged until probably about 20 years after she had suggested it and be laughed at academically for the mere idea of it and this also comes back to galaxies interestingly enough a lot of a lot of this, uh, this shocking. This You're bringing theme. it back to astronomy. Yeah, we're bringing it back to astronomy here. Well, that's where dark matter is observed, right? In a way. So, in galaxies, they tend to have a bunch of stars, right? And they all kind of get clumped together, and that's what makes a galaxy a galaxy, right? It's a big bunch of stars. And the idea around gravity was to suggest that the gravitational forces at the center of that galaxy would be far more extreme than the ones on the outer portion of the galaxy. So, if you were to observe one of these galaxies in its rotation, which you can do, and you can measure the intensity of the gravity in these areas, you would expect that what I just described to be the case. Only Vera made those observations, and that's not what she found. 
she found that gravity is consistent throughout the entire galaxy. And this made no sense at the time. Why is this the case? She postulated that there must be something in between all of that space that is keeping it consistent, that binds it all together, and that galaxies themselves appear to actually be grouped. They're themselves rotating around something, but something that's not visible to the naked eye or through our telescope. So uh, it, it later the phrase will be coined as dark matter, right? Which we now think... Just so metal. Oh, yeah. Super metal. It's like <laughs> it's like I should be wearing black eyeliner right now and, and have so many sequenced pointy things on me in describing I just wanted to point yeah. out there yeah. is a very good um, rock band I listened to in my early college days. It was called Dark Matter. Um, it was amazing. They did all of their shows in the dark. There was no lighting whatsoever, but it sounded fantastic. Later, they became Dark Energy. Um, totally different sound, though. <laughs> and then eventually they became Starship. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Starship. No. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> but she, she comes up with this, this, what is now widely accepted as being the way of thinking about the way that you know matter works in the universe and she was she was laughed at her her phd thesis and master's thesis which she wrote on the subject was completely and totally dismissed uh and it wasn't until 20 years afterwards that it was actually gaining in its credibility <laughs> yeah like there's matter in between galaxies and it's, <laughs> and it's dark uh, which uh, is why you can't see it very convenient yeah, Vera. Uh, very convenient. oh oh it's oh it's it's plausible uh, <clears throat> Well, mm. <laughs> yes. Mm. Well, you know, I, I initially thought it was a great idea. I just, you know, well, he was saying that I shouldn't. So, so. Way to throw me under the bus, yeah. Carl. Yeah. <laughs> Way to throw me under the bus. Jim, you threw yourself under the bus. <laughs> Who are you people? Carl and Jim. <laughs> Clearly. The, the leading scientists uh, of the era in the 1950s. You, you know, <laughs> Obviously. I mean, Einstein looked and at I them just, and I said, picked Carl God. just because it sounded Our cool. Gods. I didn't mean to, like, associate with Carl Sagan necessarily. Right. So. Oh. Damn. Okay, Neil. <laughs> Sorry. Cont we, we totally derailed you. Continue. Well, it could have been Jim as in James T. Kirk, so that works. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, she's finally received um, acknowledgement for her work, and she is a phenomenal astrophysicist. She still continues in the field, even though she has been retired for a few years now. Mm -hmm. She's 86 years old and living out of Philadelphia. Uh, and, and now working uh, as a cage fighter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. She goes, She's amazing. She, she goes under the uh, under the uh, the wrestling name, the Big Bang. Yeah. Nice, nice. She's like, come on, I'm gonna turn you into dark matter. <laughs> so, okay. Well, I want to go ahead and wrap it up. One of those things we just said was not true. Yeah. <laughs> just want to throw that out there. I do want to wrap it up by talking about a very specific group of women. Okay. So why don't you guys see if you can guess this? What do you Jean Jennings, Marilyn Westcoff, Ruth Lichterman, Betty Snyder, Frances Bilas, and Kay McNulty all have in common? Teeth. Presumably, <laughs> yes. Presumably. So, so random. Hair. Well, right, too. No, let's just, no, let's no. just name body parts. You can't go up by that. I did teeth. You got to think of something more creative. Vowels. They have Thoughts. vowels. And then... They all have Thoughts. 
Okay, yes, they absolutely <laughs> did. They had very many independent thoughts, but they were also the first women to work on the ENIAC. The ENIAC. Yes. Mm. Which, which was a missile guidance system. It's it, not yeah. to be confused with an anorak. No. <laughs> um, it's the world's first programmable, all-electronic, general-purpose computer. Mm. Considered. Yes. Right? Um, it was developed in World War II by the Americans, and it was... What helped, I mean, they were, it was basically missile ballistics yeah. is what they were trying to come up with, um, even doing work on the atom bomb, which is why it was top, top secret during World War II. Sure. So a lot of these people weren't, didn't know that there were, that this computer existed, let alone that there were women working on it. Right. And so, yes, men built the computer. And there was um, – actually, I was reading an interview with Jean Jennings, and it was basically kind of – she basically equated it to boys and their toys. They thought that the important part was that it was built, that the engineers made it, and that the programming of it was the menial tasks, the menial labor that wasn't as as important. Which really, now that we know so much more about computers, we know how important programming is. Yeah, it's it's just what brings us right back work. to Ada yeah. Lovelace, too, which exactly. is so funny. Exactly. Um, it's almost like you planned this. It's almost like I planned it. And so uh, the ENIAC was um, hanging out at the University of Pennsylvania, and they basically asked women specifically to come work on this particular um, this particular machine. I think it's worth noting that the uh, the ENIAC was also just to get perspective here was the size of a warehouse at yeah. this point. It was it was gigantic. It was it was very very large. Yeah, and all and they basically put out ads in the papers asking women specifically with um, with degrees in mathematics or even interests in math mathematics come down and let's see what you got and so they kind of started doing a little bit of testing they ended up pulling out six women that were absolutely superb okay so the actual ad i have it here the actual ad reads wanted women with degrees in mathematics women being offered scientific and engineering jobs where formerly men were preferred now is the time to consider your job in science and engineering you will find that slogan there elsewhere is women wanted. <laughs> and you have to add like a 1940s voice to that. You will I find that slogan you. there as elsewhere as women wanted. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so all these women kind of from all walks of life came together. They pulled out six spectacular women and put them to work. They basically dropped the blueprints of the computer in front of them and said, all right, make it work. <laughs> and that was it. They did six weeks of training and then were just thrown in headfirst. And they were the ones who figured out all the debugging. The engineers loved them because they were the ones, because they were working with the machine every single day, they were the ones who were able to help them figure out what was wrong when something mechanical happened. Yeah. So they were debugging it. They were coming up with um, the ways for it to function. When World War II was coming to a close and they were actually willing to make the, the ENIAC public. Yeah. They there were two women specifically, um, Jennings and Snyder, were very specifically working on the program to show the the ballistic movement of the atom bomb and were working for weeks on this, trying to get this thing to work, just the two of them, to make it ready for the presentation because it was gonna go out to the entire press. Yeah. They were working for so long, they it was like down to the wire. That they couldn't figure out, you know, why was it? There was one problem where the the trajectory kept going. Like the problem was the the computer actually wouldn't stop. 
So it was almost as if the shell kept going into the ground. So they were like, well, we need to fix this somehow. And I believe it was Snyder who they gave up. They're like, oh, my God, they're going to be embarrassed in front of the press. What are we going to do? Snyder goes home. She's asleep. And she, like, just wakes up and is like, oh, my God, I've got it. And she, like, hops on the earliest train, gets back to to Penn, and debugs it in 15 minutes. Hmm. And then, voila, it goes to the, it yeah. goes to the presentation. That's it goes awesome. to the press. And everybody loves it, and the women get no credit. They were not invited to any of the galas or anything like that. They were not invited to any press events. No credit whatsoever. And there were even some women who got called in later to work on the ENIAC at the end of World War II that still didn't get any credit. And specifically, there was one woman named Alice Hall, A-L-Y-C-E Hall. Try to look her up because she doesn't have a Wikipedia page. I found one article about her, and she and it's because she was an African-American woman. They found one picture of her working with the ENIAC women, and her name was erased off the back. Huh. So they had to track her down to find out who she was, what she did, and she was a mathematical whiz. And, the, and, and she, she still doesn't have a Wikipedia page? And she doesn't have a Wikipedia page. No. she it's was very insulting. She was pretty much like kept away from from the history of the ENIAC. She came in a little bit later towards the end of World War II, but wow. she still deserves credit. You know, anyone can create a Wikipedia page. I know. And I it's it's kind of like the most the minimalist honor you could potentially give to somebody. I know. But we don't even have have a Wikipedia page for <laughs> I know. I just want to put that out there. Well, I think she should have one before we do. <laughs> I yeah. absolutely um, agree with you on that one. So I think we should make one for her. So there's an article, the one article I have um is from I found it on nxtbook.com um and it's uh SWE magazine winter 2014 um was when they were uh when they put up this article in their magazine and the it's all within the context of this documentary that came out called top secret rosies um which was about the women who worked on ENIAC which you should definitely go out and check out the um the documentary if you're interested um and I don't I'm not sure if Alice was actually included in the documentary but the people who um you know discovered her were the same people who, who worked on this documentary in particular so Really, really fascinating stuff. And again, women were the first programmers and they did all this work. And why is it that women in in STEM jobs declined so rapidly after 1991? And honestly, I think a lot of men did consider this menial tasks and then realized that that's not actually the case. It takes it takes so much thought and, and so much work to create these programs and to make the computers do what they need to do. Sure. Yeah. It is remarkable. And women are remarkable. And everybody should know it and respect it. Here, here. As the <laughs> father of now four daughters, yep. I couldn't agree more. And uh, I am happy that I definitely encourage my daughters to be in pursuits of the mind and of science. Uh, particularly uh, Sophia, I took her to her first star party. Uh, just a, a little while ago, she absolutely loved it. She went insane. We're going back next month because uh, the star party group that I am a part of, that I help manage, the Halls Valley Astronomical Group, uh, it's uh, it, we meet we meet monthly. So if you have young daughters, 
uh, or older daughters or any. Can, can I go? Yeah, you can go. Anybody can go. <laughs> uh, and you want to bring them and expose them to some science and you're from the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, go to hallsvalley.org and have a look at our website and you can find our whole schedule for uh, our star parties. And hopefully I will have finished redesigning the website by the time you go look at it because right now it was made in 1995 and Uh-oh. it still looks like it did in 19. 19- 95 the year the year after the internet went public folks yeah <laughs> womp womp. It itself is actually kind of a relic you sure it it's is, not, is yeah. it like geocities or angel fireside <laughs> uh yeah i mean i mean it looks uh it's it looks older than that uh yeah all right anyhow i'm just saying if you have young daughters and you want to expose them to science uh and engineering and mathematics and computer programming and, and anything uh do it Mm-hmm. Just get them started early. Yep. There are classes you can take your children to to teach them the fundamentals of programming. Uh, there is so much that's out there available to you for free online or on television uh, or in museums or, you know, dare I even say libraries. I know it seems strange to use a building uh, in such a way these days, but you can take your daughter to a library and, and don't, expose her to that. And don't let teachers or other people or anything discourage your children. If they're... If that's where their interests lie, absolutely pursue it and let them know that those interests are okay. If you have a young boy, a son who's interested in ballet, you know what? Take him to ballet class. Hell yeah. Your sex doesn't determine what you should or should not do as your passion, as something that you want to partake in. Yep. So so don't let those traditional cultural norms prevent the next Ada Lovelace or, yeah. and or not- Henrietta Levitt. And not just for, you know, women and, you know, men exploring creative arts or whatever, but also for minorities. Sure. Because most of the people that we talked about today were white women because yeah. there's an even larger bias against minorities um, in STEM fields. Yeah. So. Absolutely. And that's just not fair. And that's really bad representation. So let's go ahead and just make sure that we're appreciating all the people who are contributing and letting everybody contribute because here, here. that's how we're going to better society. Let's just treat people like people. Yeah. That, that'd I'm kind of getting tired of labels. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> labels are a lot of work. Well, let's not treat mm-hmm. people like people because people treat people bad. Let's treat people good. Let's yeah. say yes. Treat people good. Treat people like you want to be treated. Them. Yeah. Let's try that. Yeah. Yeah. All, all right. right. So. Are we off our soapbox now? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, let's good. get into some feedback. This week in listener feedback. Ooh, do it. I've been here for feedback. Yeah, we we only we have we got a lot of the last month, so we're gonna save it just for a couple. But one I did want to bring up was um, related to our St. Patrick's Day uh, episode. We got a couple. One was from Never Blame Canada, aka Kind of Epic Show, uh, Gabrielle Canada, uh, talking about how much he enjoyed the episode over Twitter. Thank you very much, sir. Um, we did get one from a guy who goes by Irish guy. Did not decline. Did not give us a name about the proper spelling of the the uh, place where St. Patrick's Cathedral is. He says, Dear Brian, Armagh is pronounced Armagh, not Armagh. I was going off of a very old Celtic pronunciation of it. My apologies of it. Uh, It may not have even been there at all, but the GH, I thought, had a soft huh sound to it. I mispronounced it. Uh, In Irish, it says that the GH is silence. Love the show, but don't do that Irish accent again, please. Um, (laughs) I I do want to make a note that he spelled my name with an I, 
uh, B-R-I-N. That is the English spelling oh my of God. Brian. You know and what? The B-R-Y-N no is, is, the old, is the old Celtic spelling you know, of Brian. Y- y- so you know what? if the shoe fits, that's all I'm going to say. You know what, Irish guy, if you're going to give feedback, oh my God. you got to give it to the correct spelling of the name. I'm just saying, that, you know. Hey, mistakes happen <laughs> on both sides. Nobody's perfect. So I guess we're even. It's okay. Oh, Lord in heaven. So <laughs> that's, all, that's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. The accent was pretty bad, though. Yeah, well. So I'm Brian, Brian, of, Brian I'm, thinks he's got a really phenomenal Irish shut accent. Shut your mouth. So you think I, you have a really phenomenal Irish or no, Australian accent. No, no, I acknowledge that it's terrible, but so <laughs> I have fun with it. That's my dad tried to learn Irish when he was a kid. He put on, when I, when I was a kid, he was an adult, he put on the tapes. <laughs> there were vowels that were pronounced like that. That's what I was going off of. So clearly I miss, again, Misunderstanding. Understood. It's all good. See, now, if there had been Amazon at the time, you would have gone and seen that that only had like half a star. And it was all from Amazon Ireland. And they were just saying, <gasps> Damn you, bullets! Damn you! <laughs> <laughs> all right. If you'd like to give us more feedback, folks, you may do that by going to our website, nerdonomy.com, and clicking on the Talk to Us link. And how else can you give us feedback, Sarah? You can also go to Twitter at nerdonomy. Or, sorry. At Nerdonomy. Fur, 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 fur. Um, you can also go to Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Nerdonomy. You can also just Google search us. You'll find us, I promise. You'll find, it, you'll find you, all the things. You could probably stalk us. We, we didn't invent the name Nerdonomy, but we've yeah. definitely dominated it. So, yes. yeah, yeah. But, yeah. I mean, you can find us, I'm sure. And yeah. Corner us and mm-hmm. give us feedback in person. But don't do Indeed. that. That's a terrible idea. Uh, in addition, you can also support us through our website uh, by clicking on, either, on our Audible link on the right side of our page or going through our numerous posts with amazon links as well if you're on a mobile device you can go to audibletrial.com slash nerdonomy and sign up for a free trial and we'll get a small commission off of that of course you can buy your t-shirts but more importantly folks what's more important than us getting money uh well i am now accepting both donations of diapers (laughs) and infant formula we prefer gerber good start that's the one with the purple label on it the gentle uh for the podcast eric for the podcast oh sorry (laughs) I, I, I tend to wander. Um, almost as if I'm a planet. A wandering planet. Oh, my God. <laughs> Eric. It might just wander into the next episode. Sorry. Uh, With the mass that your ego has gained in the last episode, yes, I, you might be coming your own planet. It's possible. Yeah. You can go on iTunes and review us. That's what we're trying <laughs> oh. to get at. <laughs> Look, you can, it's been a while, guys. Yeah. Or you can just tell your friends yep. about us. Yeah. Get people to listen to us. You know, give suggestions. You share us on Facebook. Just get us out there somewhere. We need people to listen. Please. Spread the word of nerd. If you don't do it, I'll have another kid. Oh, my God. Please. And then I'll no. be gone for another month. I swear I'll do no. it. He'll do it. He's very fertile, folks. He'll do it. I have I have Irish ancestry and my wife is from Mexico. We are the absolute perfect combination for making babies. I will do it. <laughs> Please prevent Eric from having more babies and tell your friends about us. Thank you. <laughs> the uh, coming to Kickstarter in like a month. Is, uh, <laughs> Please stop Eric from breeding. <laughs> Fun. You're paying for a vasectomy. Uh, wow. Too much information. Uh, folks, it is that time. And until we meet again, stay nerdy and tune into our next exciting episode. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Bye. Adios. Peace. No, seriously, Eric, do not have more kids. I swear to God.
One of them already cries every single time I come through your house. Okay. I just, I. All right. Uh, you know what? Make me Mike too. I won't have any more kids. I'm not even asking for one. I. But, we'll consider it. We'll you consider can, it. You, you can be one. We'll make Brian. Oh, yeah. Three. No, I'm totally on board with that. I can hear That's you guys. Cool. You we'll know Brian that. Brian five. Oh, yeah. Oh, let's make yeah. Brian Mike five. Yeah. Okay, great. You know I can hear you, right? Yeah. It's a democracy. <laughs> we win. Mob rule. <laughs>